Welcome to In the Know, the Bourbon Street Shots Podcast. We're your hosts, Schmidt Duop and Mason Ginsberg, and this is all Pelicans all the time. Sometime and joined by Mason Ginsburg, who is now joining us as a married man. Um, Mason, you got married, dude. What? How did that go? <laughs> well, well, she said yes, which is the first uh, hurdle to clear. Um, oh, but thank God. <laughs> no, but I'll, I'll just say it was. I mean, it was absolutely. I mean, we we got we got super lucky with the weather. We did an outdoor ceremony and indoor reception, and uh, it was really. It was miserable Thursday and Sunday weather, but Friday, Saturday was just great. So we big time lucked out. It was exactly what we were hoping for. And then uh, got to take a few days off after that and just kind of like de-stress from, from everything. But wait, wait, wait. You got to set the the setting here a little bit. Where, where was <laughs> this? Um, West Bloomfield, Michigan. So it, it's about 30 minutes from Detroit. Uh, we did it on a golf. We got married on a golf course, which is hilarious because I've still never played around the golf in my life. Um, and, but, uh, it was just kind of, it was beautiful that the, where, you know, the ceremony was uh, like, like you could look at on the, on the water. Um, no, there was one. So this is something we were worried about. Um, it's boating season out there. And so we were worried about some guy or, or a drunk group on a boat kind of going by right as the ceremony was going on. It didn't happen, but there was this boat that just kind of sat there for like 20 minutes. And it was a little creepy, but <laughs> we, we pretty, we pretty much lucked out there. That was that was another concern we had. But uh, but yeah, so it was uh, in, uh, in south southeast Michigan, um, and um, surprisingly, no Lonzo stand showed up. Oh man, that's unfortunate. Uh, did you invite Boater Bro to the reception? <laughs> um, no, they took off before the before the wedding itself, and then we didn't get a chance to bring them. But um, missed missed opportunity. That's fun. And then you went on a on a mini moon, as you call it. Where where did you go there? Yeah, um, we just went down. The, we so we flew down to Miami and then instant, instantly left Miami. Uh, we actually we just went to Fort Lauderdale, uh, got a, a a hotel on the on the beach and just kind of relaxed Monday through Friday. Was uh, leaving Miami intentional? Like, was that always the plan, or was it like, ah, yeah, let's not do Miami? Absolutely, always planned. I we just weren't looking to that. That seemed a little too fast paced for us after we just spent the last week stressing out about a wedding um, and making sure everything was perfect. So very much just about relaxing we looked at like um the, uh the up is what they call it up here the upper peninsula we looked at places around um around there but that's like you pretty much got to book that months in advance because it's like two months where that's a, a reasonable vacation spot and it's beautiful and the rest of the time it's just too cold so um we'd have just taken we found some cheap flights down to florida and just did that instead that, that sounds fun so the the name mini moon implies that there's a mega moon out there is that the plan at some point or is it just like yeah you know whatever we'll get to it yeah um that's the plan um we we wanted to do it right after but um 
I mean, COVID didn't, we didn't want to try to plan something that could get scrapped anyway. And also um, living in Chicago, it's better to, to take a trip in the winter. And so we want to do like a big two week trip internationally. Um, still, still throwing around locations, um, but really it still will probably depend on uh, any sort of COVID restrictions, but, uh, but yeah, that's the plan. Maybe like December, January, something like that. Well, congratulations. And speaking of putting a ring on it, Drew Holiday joins you. <laughs> that was good. One of your better champion. ones. Oh, yeah. I've, I've been working on that one. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but the Milwaukee Bucks are NBA champions. And Drew Holiday uh, is also an NBA champion, which is great. And I, I wanted to talk about that game, maybe that series a little bit. Uh, get, your, get your thoughts on it, first of all. Um, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Cooper or basketball player? I need to know. <laughs> you know, it was the jury was out for a while, but I think we can finally say that the, he's whatever you want to call him. Um, but just the, the MVP. I mean, that's that's what he is, and he's, he's, a, he's a hoop. He's a hooper. champion. True, he's a champion. Fin- and, NBA uh, Finals MVP, champion, whatever. What a ridiculous game by him! Fifty points. Was it 12 rebounds, 14 rebounds? I don't know. I forget this entire stat line. Ridiculous game. The whole game, he was just out to kill, demanding the ball. And truly one of the most impressive carry jobs because Drew was awful and on, on the offensive end. Let me qualify that. He was awful at scoring the basketball. Uh, Chris Middleton had some stretches where he made some big buckets. He made a really, really big bucket late. Um, which is he's somehow always clutch, but you know, he wasn't there. I think like Giannis, Giannis had almost 50% of the Bucks points. They had 105 points and he scored 50 of them, which is absolutely absurd. The Bucks won four straight, which is really impressive considering all the shit that uh, Budenholzer gets, including from me. I give him a lot of shit. And, um, but they won four straight against a Monty Williams team and a, and a Chris Paul team. And, and I think that was a really impressive victory by, by the Bucks through and through for the, for the championship. Yeah, it was it was a heck of a turnaround for the for the Bucks. All it, it, people were, were closing the book on them. I mean, just based it, it kind of seemed like every series they they scratched and clawed their way to a win. They never really looked dominant, and so you know it, you can make an argument with the injuries that happened with the Nets that the Suns the best team they played. And so when you see them go down 2-0, you know, it's reasonable based on based on how they played throughout each series of the playoffs, reasonable to think that maybe that this is this is it for them. Um, but man, credit to the Bucks, the coach, like you said, the coaching staff, they 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 made they made some adjustments. They um, you know, um, whether it's how basically how they were scheming around Booker and Chris Paul, and and it, I mean they clearly made the right decisions, which is something I think not many people expected from, from coach Bud, but um, you know, hats off to them. They, um, you know, they, they came back and, and did it in a really impressive fashion four in a row. Well, this podcast is the Drew holiday supporter podcast for sure. And I think one of the coolest things for me to watch during that series was from game to game, they basically deployed Drew on who they would consider like the most dangerous threat. I mean, I, I don't know if that was like their exact mentality, but I think um, there's this Owen Phillips on, on Twitter who does amazing stat, uh, amazing breakdowns, amazing data, data visuals. 
And he basically has a chart of like what percentage of time Drew spent defending uh, who on the Suns or whom, I don't know. Uh, forgive my English there. But I think it was like game one, uh, he was on on Booker and Booker didn't do so well. And then like CP3 went off. And I think game two was like something similar. And then they shifted him over to CP3 for the next like three games. And then finally, like the, the last game here, he was back on Booker. And whoever they put Drew on, was just a non-factor that game. Like there was never a game where the primary assignment that Drew had like went off and he just had one of the most impressive displays of defense over, I think the entire playoffs. Like he was phenomenal from the Miami series to the net series to uh, the Hawks series, especially when he closed out. Um, you know, he was really good in those two games that Giannis did him play to close out that series. And then to this series, it was just defensively, he was all the way there. Offensively, boy, oh boy, he looked rough so many times. And the Bucks winning, shooting, up, uh, like, I think 31% from three uh, across the whole, across all of the playoffs, I think is the first time for a team to win a championship shooting that low of a three-point percentage since the 2010 Lakers, which is completely absurd. Um, just mind-boggling. And they did it on the backs of their defense, which is super impressive. Yeah. Um, and, and I think we noticed uh, regarding Drew's offensive struggles, I mean, I mean a lot of the time they, um, you know, they were switching up their coverages. And, and when I feel like when, when you're putting bridges on Drew Holiday, just based on how the – uh, how the Bucks are running their offense. It's kind of a victory for Milwaukee because it, I, I think Drew is obviously exuding uh, you know, more effort on the defensive end, um, especially as you continue to shift the, the responsibilities more and more to Giannis. Um, I think that's something that the the Bucks will will live with. And, and Drew certainly stepped up on the defensive end, even if his offense was <laughs> left a lot to be desired. Yeah, for sure. Um, I, I don't, I mean, I w- it would have made more sense for them, I think, to put Bridges primarily on Middleton for a lot of yeah. those games. Yeah. And but Middleton, I guess, you know, because like you know, Booker, like Middleton will just shoot over Booker, and they'll shoot over Chris Paul, and he just puts them in the post. I don't know. Milwaukee's a tough matchup. They're really, they're really a lot tougher than people give them credit for offensively, despite of all of their offensive troubles, and that's why they won the championship because their offense was good enough. I mean, that and just Giannis being an absolute monster, just complete, complete dominant player. I mean, I, I, I don't have enough superlatives for how good that guy is. And I was calling him tall Westbrook during the middle of the net series, <laughs> <laughs> but it's a compliment because, you know, he just is relentless and then he's tall. So it's, he's tall Westbrook. No, I'm, I'm kidding. But in the net series, he really truly had like extremely questionable shot selection. And I don't know if it was like, maybe it was just some, some injury or something that clicked in him, or it was just the defensive matchups, you know, like the nets were that good at, um, switching and, and causing the Bucks to play one-on-one, whatever it was, maybe it's just the, they weren't ready for that kind of play. He, he flipped the switch um, when it came to the Suns, and he was just was unstoppable. Those, like, pull-up threes with 20 seconds left on the clock, those disappeared. And, and, and those were, like, the biggest head-scratching moments. It seemed like he got in this battle of, like, hey, I'm playing against KD. Let me try to be like KD. And it, it definitely was – unpleasant to watch when he was trying to do that stuff 
Yeah, I, I would be very curious to know what clicked. Um, I don't know if it was basically him having a reality check when he, you know, came, went down with that injury, the hyperextension on his, his knee, and kind of realized that holy shit, these opportunities don't come around that often. And and I'm I'm probably exaggerating and and thinking that this is how he thought. But I, I am. It, it's a great point. I really am curious what made his because. He can do that. What he what he did in Game Six, obviously, fifty points is kind of an, an, an uh, anomaly, but like he's talented to do that frequently. And so, yeah, I, it was so, kind of a, maybe a self realization of sorts. Um, but it was it was something to watch, man. Yeah, I mean, it, it was unbelievable. I'm very very happy that he won. I think it opens up a really fun conversation about team building and and how Milwaukee went about arriving where they are obviously having a tier one talent such as Giannis I found uh, a foundation as good as him is number one step for any team to reach that tier but how they went about surrounding him with with players that fit talented players how aggressive they were and pursuing Drew Holiday how essentially the only player that was in their rotation that they drafted was Dante DiVincenzo um, outside of Giannis, sorry. Obviously, they, they drafted Giannis, right? And after DiVincenzo got hurt, none of those other guys were people that, that they drafted. They all they, they either signed them through smart signings or they traded for them, which is incredible for a small market to be able to pull off, in my opinion. And I think them and the Suns both are, are similar in the sense that neither of them required marquee superstars to force their way to their teams and and kind of create a super team situation they they built them through ingenuity from their management and and i hope the pelicans one day can replicate something like that uh the, you know the atlanta hawks prior to that are, are also similar right they they have a bunch of young players that have started peaking at the right time now they started peaking together and then they made some really smart signings in bogdanovich and um Gallinari, which again there were there were risks right Gallinari is uh, walking injury and he's up there when it comes to age but he's productive when he's healthy and then the, the Clint Capella trade was really really good for them and so it just kind of shows you that there are a lot of opportunities for improvement no matter who you are and the Hawks and the Suns particularly being as bad as they were immediately last year like they were terrible terrible teams last year um, and then having the success they have is bodes well for other franchises if you're you know if you're smart enough to to make the right moves. Yeah. And I, I think another thing that we've seen over the past couple of years now is that um, just, just go for it. I mean, I, I think we've seen how razor thin the margin for error is. And, and also, you know, how, uh, how things can change with, with injuries. I mean, I, I, I think even if you have you know, a super team, I think that's what everyone considered the Nets to be was, uh, you know, among, all these other contenders, you had this Brooklyn Nets once they got James Harden as this just brute, brute force that, let's be honest, if they were healthy, they probably win the title. I don't think the Bucks are getting past Brooklyn in that series if they're healthy. So, um, but that's that's what happens. And so you you can't just go into a season assuming that the best team is going to, you know, just waltz through and win the title. I mean, because shit happens. And so I think um, you know, if, if whenever the Pelicans feel like they've got a chance to make that jump, look at the look at what happened in the playoffs this year. Don't, especially in the mar- in a small market like this, don't don't take it for granted and just go for it. Yeah, I I'm completely with you, man. Um, 
you know, I, I think there's going to be smarter people than us that, that kind of write the big picture stuff when it comes to what this means for the league and, and how teams are going to adjust their, their philosophies appropriately. But I do think, you know, there's an element of truth in like, Hey, you kind of have to pave your own way forward and, and not necessarily try to replicate upon the success of someone else. Like the bucks, they're not modeling anyone else really. Like they, they have Giannis, they got their own guys. They went out and got Drew and, and they, they stuck to, you know, whatever their, their philosophy was. Um, the Suns again, they, there's no real model for, Hey, let me trade for a 35 year old point guard. And um, you know, things just work. Right. I mean, I, that's, that's selling it short because of the incredible work that Devin Booker put in and then Monty Williams and then the growth of DeAndre Ayton, just the leaps he took within the playoffs um, and their, and their young players, obviously again, peaking at the right time, like Atlanta, but there, there is in Atlanta, you know, Atlanta's philosophy is somewhat again, not close to any of those other teams either. So I think it's better to find out what your strengths are and then try your hardest to accentuate them. And and with the Pelicans, right, they have one organ, organizational aligning piece, which is Zion, who can you can base your whole philosophy around. Um, and then they have an incredible player next to him, Brandon Ingram. And so that should be a better starting point than a lot of teams. Yeah. And you mentioned Aiden specifically. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to think of who the, who the last guy is to make a jump like that in the playoffs. I mean, I feel like the guy we, we – some people thought it was last year was Tyler Harrow. And I think it's pretty clear that that was some not saying he's as bad as he was this year, but also bubble fraud is kind of a kind of, kind of feels, feels like more fake than real just comparing last year to this year for Harrow. But can you think of anyone that's kind of made a, because I feel like Aiden's jump was legitimate. Like it was very. Yeah. Because, because with Tyler Harrow, he had unbelievable shot making. For, right. for for the playoffs where it wasn't with Aiden it's not like he was shooting an outlier level from any particular area because you know he, he doesn't take jump shots he's, he's mostly around the rim he it was okay here are the things I'm good at I'm really freaking athletic I'm really big I have amazing touch and body control and what I'm going to do is outwork everyone because that is an area that I can control and so I'm going to outwork everyone both on offense and on defense and those are going to afford me opportunities to convert. And with all the attention that Devin Booker, I mean, guard play is super important. I mean, Chris Paul makes like regular bigs look amazing. And when you have a big as talented as DeAndre Aiden, I mean, that's, that's a marriage um, destined for success. So I, he really drilled down on all his strengths, which is I think important because it's not often you see number one picks who are willing to, be the star in their role they they would want you know a diet of post-ups or threes or whatever it is you know they would they want they would want to diversify their game rather than just stay in this very specific lane and become you know become an all-star in that lane and, and that's exactly what Aiden did he's like okay this is the pathway for for our team to be successful and for me to be successful I'm going to show it and the other guy I think that showed that uh, on a similar level was John Collins where John Collins it was like yeah this guy can score can he do any of the grunt work? And I think he did a lot of that throughout the playoffs and, and throughout as, as a season, he's like, okay, this guy can easily put up 25 a night, but can he do all the other things? And I thought John Collins did a really good job of doing all the other things. 
Yeah, and um, I I mean, obviously there's a big financial incentive for him to, to this season specifically to to make that jump, but um, it's still it's it doesn't diminish how impressive it was. I mean, for a, for a young player like that, you just to 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 figure out the other aspects of his game and 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 just you know dig in on that versus just continuing to improve on the things he already is good at. Um, it, it takes, it takes maturity and acknowledgement of, uh, that you have things you need to get better at. And so, um, yeah, I, I agree, agree for, for sure on, on Collins. What's, what's going to be fascinating is again, like these teams, they made it pretty far. Are they able to reach this standard again? Um, because I don't think that's a guarantee. I, I, the, the Suns are about to get really expensive. I think they have some leeway here. But they're about to get really expensive because Aiton's presumable max extension is this summer. I think he's eligible for it this summer, if I'm not mistaken. Um, Mikhail Bridges is essential eligible this summer. So they're about to get really expensive. Chris Paul has an option for 40-something million, or he can re-sign for a new deal. Now, if he walks, I don't think he's going anywhere. I, I've, I've heard from pretty good people that, He's not going anywhere, but obviously he just lost in the finals last night and anything can change on a moment's notice. And you can never, never, never underestimate Robert Sarver and his ability (laughs) to fuck up a situation. So, so can you, so like this is something I've been wondering that it, I, I feel like it's at the point where I'm missing something for the life of me. I cannot understand why the Suns wouldn't just why Chris Paul and the Suns wouldn't negotiate an extension, have him opt into the, 44 million and then you get a discount on his next contract like that feels like it makes too much sense for both parties given that like you said the first year of Aiden's extension would be 22 23 and then you'd have Chris Paul and maybe a discount because you're what he's opting into the 44 mil I mean what am I missing is there is there a um is there like a certain percentage that extension has to be? No, no, there doesn't because Steven Adams. Yeah, exactly. Adams was exactly what I was thinking about. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't get it. I don't know. It seems like it makes too much sense. CP three is the one that made the, the rule, right. The over 35 or 36, I don't know, whatever they negotiated for. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, So maybe that that's coming. I don't know. I I really don't know. Mason. I, I don't know. Maybe it's just, he wants to keep his options open. Like, Hey, this is his time to go get a ring with LeBron. I don't know. Maybe he's like, I tasted the finals. Let me, let me fucking get a ring. Who knows? Um, but it's, it's, it's interesting because if he opts in, obviously they're a very expensive team. If he doesn't um, and he just renegotiates a longer and newer deal, then, you know, how long is he going to stay effective at this level for? And then he's right. always an injury concern himself. And he was several times during these playoffs um with his shoulder and then getting COVID. I mean COVID is not an injury so that's that can happen to anybody but um yeah it's just like what is the shelf life on on Chris, Chris Paul I I don't know I, did I you just say Cliff Paul um I mumbled some words there <laughs> <laughs> but you know it's 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 going to be interesting to watch likewise with Atlanta there you know John Collins is do you, he's a restricted free agent this summer and I'm curious to see what they do with um, their bench. And I'm curious to see how they proceed going forward. Uh, they could be very good for a very long time. I mean, I, again, it, it all, when you have a guy like Trey Young, when you have a guy like Devin Booker, it's not difficult to keep aligning the pieces around them um, and extending it because those guys are so good. Right. But it's, 
can you get to the conference finals again? I don't know. It's really, really difficult. I mean, the Clippers just got to the conference finals for the first time in franchise history. Uh, and, and they're in a such interesting situation because Kawhi Leonard, ACL surgery, what are they doing next year? Like, when does Kawhi even come back? He might miss the whole year, which I think would be advisable. Is that, is that a year where they just shadow tank? Like, can they, sh- can they shut, can they shut Paul George down? Can they do like a David Robinson in the Spurs and, um, and, and they end up with like a really good pick. I don't know. I don't actually, I don't even know if OKC controls uh, a pick of theirs at that point. I haven't looked at their situation at all. Kawhi might also opt out and, and leave. Uh, I don't see that happening. I think I see him staying in LA, but they're a weird team, but point being here is that they can replace that. They'll be fine. They just need to trade for blood. So, and all will be, all will be well. Yeah. Okay. There you go. There, that's the solution. <laughs> I, I look at, you know, I think the, the Alonzo stuff has come up and how the Clippers are interested in Alonzo ball. And, and it's like, okay, that's cool. But you guys already have enough guaranteed money that takes you over the apron. It takes you over the hard cap. Like how are you going to create the space necessary to sign and trade for, for Alonzo? And one way to do it is if Kawhi just leaves them entirely, <laughs> that's how they can get Lonzo is if Kawhi is no longer on the team and they're building around Paul George. But, um, but yeah, weird team. I think the overall point I'm trying to get at here is, uh, and it's kind of like what you mentioned is if you have an opportunity to go for it, go for it, because really nothing is guaranteed. You don't know about any of these teams. Uh, a lot of the contenders are getting up there in age, right? LeBron is old and AD's body is kind of failing him. Um, Achilles aren't anything to joke around with. I, I think Brooklyn has a shelf life because they're old um, and, and they, they get hurt frequently as well. So Murray's out for the Nuggets. I mean, yeah, right. Murray's out for the Nuggets. The Blazers are in shambles. Um, my hand, Miami's whatever. So it's like, okay, well, Philly, you know, Philly might be something. Utah is like, eh. Um, so like the Bucks might have a chance to like repeat if, if all things okay. go well for him, but their journey wasn't exactly easy as well. So I, I think with Zion and the Pelicans, like, shit man if you have an opportunity to really upgrade the roster and go for it then then do it yeah yeah um for sure i mean and to answer your question that the 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 clippers first round pick is gone it's a next for 2022 it's it's in okc's hands and then it's unprotected yep their their draft capital (laughs) their their yeah i know bad news but their draft capital for the foreseeable future 22 through 25 is all owned by OKC and, and the firm of either swaps or outright. So, uh, so yeah, not, not a great situation for the Clippers. And yeah, I mean, I agree across the board. And you've got like, you've got a few teams you could feel relatively confident about at least for next season. Even, even the teams I am still confident about like Utah. I mean, there's what's, what's going on with Donovan Mitchell is a fair question. Um, you know, what's look, man, there's a lot of smoke in the NBA, a lot of smoke in, in league circles that, Mitchell is not happy. And, and I know, like, I know we get upset about like the whole Zion situation and him potentially being in a place to not take his extension and all that. Um, It's unfortunate that a small market like Utah is potentially about to go through something like that. And they just had one of their most successful seasons in a long time in the regular season. Um, The playoffs were disappointing 
things Mitchell is not happy there. Um, a lot can change because his deal is just now kicking in. <laughs> Utah has no incentive to trade him anywhere because he has a uh, he just he just signed his deal. But like that's the kind of stuff that makes you sour on the league a little bit is if these stars suddenly start getting disgruntled and like really accelerating this process or putting franchises in positions that are just no win situations. And like, you don't know what's going to happen with Luca. Um, that situation is, could be good, could be bad. Um, I get, that's a tremendous hedge by me, but you know, you're, you've, you've seen the drama and like they fired, they fired Carlisle, they fired their GM, you know, it's a complete makeover and they hired Jason Kidd, which he better work. <laughs> if he doesn't work, then, you know, like, uh, there's no guarantee Luca's going to be like Dirk. And um, yeah, so it's unfortunate. And, and I think the Pelicans are in a similar situation, but that's another reason to like, Hey, like you have a limited time with these dudes, like make the most yeah. of it. Yeah. It, it's wild because like, I feel like earlier in the season. So when Drew Holiday agreed to that contract extension with, with the Bucks, everyone was like, Oh, that kind of sucks. It, it for the, I mean, it, it was necessary for the Bucks to keep everything the team together, but I think there was a general consensus that you're probably overpaying Drew for the last half of that contract, if not more. And now it's something like, okay, the Bucks are arguably the most stable team in the NBA. And so, you know, you you like looking back, right. you do that you do that three times over. I mean, that's even even if the last year or two of Drew is an overpay. I mean, still, that, that's that, they've got their core locked up for a couple of years now. Look, part of the price, there's a few costs of a championship, right? So one of the costs of a championship is you've got to be a tax team. Like, it is, a, it is a requirement, essentially, to be a tax team. I've talked about this on multiple podcasts, but, like, since, like, 2000, there's been, like, I think, like, maybe three champions that, have like, that haven't paid the tax. And, they like, they all eventually end up paying the tax, like, either the next year or, like, the year, like, right before that. Um, fun, uh, interesting fact. Milwaukee winning the championship kicked in uh, a one million dollar bonus for Drew Holiday that put them into a tax. So they they hit that they hit that um they hit that threshold. So good for them, and they're happily going to pay. But you have to be willing to pay the tax if you want to be a championship team. That's requirement number one. Requirement number two is you have to be you have to be willing to be a financial wasteland after winning a championship. Like that is that is a cost. Like you go all in on your window if you. I think Darren Morey said it best that like if you if see a year where you have even a five percent chance of winning a championship, you go all in on that, right? Because five percent is higher than you're ever going to get, and and then with them giving out all this money to Drew and and Chris Middleton and then Giannis, they got their ring. It does not matter. Like they won, it was their first like championship in fifty years, I believe. It was it was fifty years since since uh, anything happened there um, with the Bucks. So that's it. That's the price. Like if my consequence of, uh, of like if, if the Pelicans won a championship and you told me like, okay, the next four years are going to be like Cleveland is now where they have like, like an overpaid Kevin Love and there's a terrible team with like so, so young players. Yeah. Hell yeah. Sign me up for that. I don't care. They want a championship. Yeah, and so, sure. so that's, that's just the cost. You have to accept willing, like you have to accept being a financial wasteland at, at the end of it. Yeah. Like the Rockets did except without the championship. <laughs> no dude they're not a financial wasteland um uh, mr Tillman, would never let that happen he would never let that happen that's why they didn't win 
Now on to Sleeper. Sleeper is the fastest growing fantasy platform today with millions of players. You probably already have a fantasy league on there. I use it for mine. It's a game changing product, unlike anything else in the industry. And now you can make money on Sleeper too by playing their new over under game. It's super simple. First, in any sport, choose two or more players that you like and pick the over or under. For example, number of points in basketball or hits in baseball. Then choose the amount of money you want to enter into the contest. If you pick correctly, you can win anywhere from two times to over 20 times the money you put in. The main reason I'm excited about Over Under on Sleeper, it's the only app where I can join my buddy's contest and play together. It's got a built in group chat where I can see and copy my friend's picks with the tap of a button. It's insanely fun to ride it out together. Stop what you're doing and download Sleeper now to play their new Over Under game and have fun with your friends and, most importantly, make some money. Make sure you use that promo code BLUEWIRE and Sleeper will match your deposit up to $100. Again, download Sleeper, then use promo code BLUEWIRE when you deposit. Terms and conditions apply. See Sleeper's terms of use for details. Oh, man. But I, I think that's that's enough talk for, for them. I do want to talk about Willie Green and, and the coaching situation. So the Pelicans have all but agreed to the – Willie green being the next head coach. And by the time this podcast comes out, it's going to be announced. So, you know, quit freaking out, <laughs> so, <laughs> but you know, Willie green is going to be the Pelicans head coach, which is interesting and fun and unique because he's 39 years old. He has a, he played in new Orleans, um, had a very memorable 12 for 12 game, which I believe, I think it came against the Phoenix suns ironically. And I believe that that game knocks the suns out of playoff contention. So fun. I, I don't remember. I know. I weirdly enough, I remember it was on my birthday. I don't remember who they played it against, but it was so funny because I remember the whole year. Because I only played for the Pelicans or the Hornets for one season, but I had a back and forth with my with my buddy all year about whether or not Willie Green was like a above replacement level player, and I was convinced that he was. And my, my friend was like, "No, no way! Like, should be getting getting rid of him." It was a ridiculous argument, but um, <laughs> I, I I do remember that game. It was it was it was a, a quite quite a sight. Right. So, and then, you know, he's coached, he's had, uh, he's coached in golden state where he's won several championships. Um, and you know, now he's, he's been the, the lead assistant under Monty Williams, uh, the last couple of years, he has made tremendous relationships with his players. Chris Paul cited him as one of the reasons that he went to Phoenix in the first place, considered him a brother. People go out of their way to talk about this dude. So all in all, you know, you know, great guy. Uh, I have no idea what his X and O's, X's and O's are, uh, what his philosophy is uh, with regards to offense, defense, whatever. I'm very excited to find that out, especially during the press conference when asking as many questions as I can, which is probably going to be one, you know, they don't like to pick on us bloggers a lot, <laughs> but um <laughs> But we're going to, you know, we're, we're hopefully going to learn about who he is as a coach um, the next couple of years. I hope he gets all of the opportunities to grow um, and all the opportunities to experiment. And I hope he's not on this kind of like tight leash for like, oh, God, the Pelicans got to make the playoffs. The Zion situation is is uh, unstable, blah, 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 blah. Like, you know, I, I really hope he gets a fair shake. You know, it's his first opportunity and I hope he gets it. What's interesting is that um, Jake Fisher of Bleacher Report, by the way, he wrote a tremendous book called Built to Lose. So uh, check that out if you if you get an opportunity. It's about how uh, the Sixers tanked and kind of changed the the philosophy of of, ta- of team building. And and you know all the he interviewed a lot of people about everything that went into that. So check it out. But in any case, he wrote a really well. Uh, 
really well researched, I guess, I guess research is the, the word for it, but he got a lot of quotes from a lot of good people. Um, he clearly uh, has very good sources and he, he outlined the situation with the Pelicans coaching hire and how the Pelicans were kind of keyed into Jock Vaughn first. And, and that was definitely the buzz, right? So it was the buzz like, okay, the, the Pelicans like Jock Vaughn, they like Charles Lee, and then maybe an outside chance at Chauncey, depending on what goes on in Portland. But Vaughn seemed to be trending towards the, the favorite, right? At that point, I was reaching out to people who had worked with Vaughn, uh, getting an idea of who he was, just preparing myself like, okay, this might happen. And then David Griffin met with him at the combine. They supposedly had a dinner. This is all written in the article, by the way. Um, they supposedly had a dinner in which David Griffin kind of outlined who he is and what he, you know, his what he how he uh, interacts with coaches, and which is like hey, these are the areas that he wants to give input on. This is uh, what he envisions the the roster to be, and then he basically um, I'm, I'm paraphrasing a lot here, right? So he it seemed like one of the points where negotiations broke down was, and I've heard this from other sources as well is that David Griffin told Jock Vaughn that, hey, you got to keep Fred, you got to keep Teresa Witherspoon, and we'd really like it if we can bring in Charles Lee as your number two. Here's David Griffin. He's thinking, hey, I really love Charles Lee. Obviously, he's a candidate for the head job himself, but man, wouldn't it be awesome if I can get two of my top guys? Kind of like how the Pelicans brought in David Griffin and Trajan Langdon. Um, They got their two top guys. May, they thought maybe they could do some of that magic again. And Jack Vaughn's like, man, look, like I'm getting into this coaching situation after seven years and I'm not going to have like much freedom, like the kind of way I want it to be. Like, I don't get to flesh out my staff. I'm being forced three assistants already. Um, and then now you're talking about like, oh, you also want uh, some level of input on rotations and, and minutes and all of that stuff. I think I'll stay in Brooklyn and uh, compete to try to get a ring. The ring also bolsters his market a little bit. Um, stay with my kids. And I have, a, I have a good gig there because, you know, they're, they're already nosy in Brooklyn, right? The, the stars run the show there. The coaches don't, the coaches are there just to be friends. Um, and there's a really good article that I think, uh, shoot, I forget who wrote it. But there was a there was a pretty big expose in a way about how the Brooklyn situation is and how like the stars essentially have like the company credit card and like the the their like side chicks are getting their rent paid for through the Nets and all that kind of stuff. So very interesting stuff going on with the Nets. But regardless, the Nets like to <laughs> right crazy shit. I mean, I wish I could I could find the author. I forget who it is. I think his last name is Sullivan. I could be wrong, um, but. Yes, I, I'll probably tweet about this when, I, when it comes to me. So, any, anywho, like the Nets, you know, they've already been meddlesome. They, they fired Kenny Atkinson because he refused to play DeAndre Jordan. They wanted to play Jared Allen. And um, Jack Vaughn's like, whatever, man, this situation is probably not the best for me right now. I'm going to move on. And Griffin's like, okay, cool. Um, and then they obviously they shifted their sides to Willie Green. And there was some speculation that the Pelicans brought out Zion and and B.I. to go meet him, but it turns out that B.I. was just out there because they wanted to go, they wanted him to watch a playoff game, and he also works out there in the offseason, and Zion was supposed to be there, but he ended up canceling, um, and a lot of people are freaking out, like, oh, he canceled on him, he canceled on him, it's like, guys, like, 
why, why don't you just wait for the reason to come out why you cancel? Like, if, if, it, if it's even that important. Like, there's, there's plenty of playoff games. You have no idea if he made it out to another one or not. And um, I know for a fact that he's had a lot of obligations in L.A. and in uh, at the Jordan HQ in Oregon that he's had to leave New Orleans to go to that he's not been too happy about. Uh, but, you know, obligations are obligations. That's how you, that's how you make money. He's, he's, not a, he's, he's not a ruffle spokesperson. He actually has responsibilities. You know, right. Gotta, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's why he gets paid the big bucks. Um, but in any case, uh, I think I think there's uh, there's a discussion to be had whether what David Griffin, how David Griffin handled Jock Vaughn's situation is appropriate and, and what that means going forward. And I'm curious to get your thoughts before I dive into my own is do, do you feel that was that was overbearing of Griff to kind of force all these things upon Jock Vaughn? Um, so in a vacuum, maybe not necessarily, uh, cause you're, you're looking at a, well, I, I don't know. I, I think it's, it's, it's tough. I think he's a little bit too overbearing. Um, I think, I think wanting teaspoon and wanting Vincent still to, to stay on the staff is something that is totally reasonable given the players relationships with both those guys. Um, I think trying to, and, and, and this is the gray area, right? But maybe you know more than me, but it's hard to, to actually parse out how, whether in the range of you have to do this versus like, if you don't, that's fine. But I would, this is something I'd like, like where in the spectrum was that with Charles Lee? Um, and so it, it's, so it, it's tough to see. And, and like, I guess without being a flannel on that wall of conversation, it's hard to know if you think Griff was overbearing, but he does have a track record for it. And so I'm, I feel like I'm, I'm much more inclined to give Jacques one the benefit of the doubt here and think that. Griff was going a little bit over the top. And so, I mean, to, uh, to Jake Fisher's credit, he, he did very clearly state this is kind of a trend for the teams moving in overall and other, you know, um, GMs, hobos are, are, are trying to put their fingerprints all, all over staffs more. But um, it, it depends on, on what, what uh, leader you're talking about. And so um, I, I do feel like maybe he went a little too far, Griff, but I, but I think the degree to which he did might be over – exaggerated just based on his reputation so uh one thing one small off-topic thing uh because you live tweeted the chris paul thing uh a very knowledgeable Suns fan was in my dms and he said please direct this to mason and it's it's um uh he he sent me it's his pin tweet it's david kevin and apparently you do follow oh yeah so. yeah yeah he, he said it to me as well <laughs> so so he wrote um, about it so yeah, reread that and uh, we'll retweet it after, yeah. after this podcast. And um, sure. apparently there's enough explanation in there for why uh, Chris Paul's extension was not negotiated. But going back to Jock Vaughn's situation, I think Jock Vaughn was 100% within his rights to feel like, hey, man, this is too much for me. Yeah. Look, like um, typically coaches have some level of autonomy when it comes to hiring their staff. Not, you know, not total autonomy. There's always situations where where GMs and, and management have like, they, they, they encourage them to retain some of the previous staff or they encourage them to go hire this guy. And it's usually a joint decision, right? It's not like, Hey, you've got to keep this person. It's like, okay, like we like this person, feel them out, see what it is. Right. Um, so having three of his, I guess, four spots filled is some, some coaches get five, some of the four, but like having like uh, anywhere between, 75 to 60 to 75 percent of the, the available spots filled 
is um, kind of crazy, right? Because he, you know, he barely gets to, to do anything of his own. When Stan came in, he he fired everybody except for Fred Vinson, and um, and and then he kept two player development people, um, which uh, D House as well as um, Teaspoon. Right, Teaspoon was promoted, I think, from a two-way coach to just a player development coach. And now David Griffin saying, like, okay, you're not just a player development coach, you're gonna be a front front bench, right? Um, so having Fred Vincent and Teaspoon as a front bench and then putting Charles Lee on there, which by the way, if news broke that Pelicans have hired Jock Juan and they brought in Charles Lee, people would have been ecstatic. They would have been like, Oh my god, we got we got all the guys, like we got we got everything, right? It would have been a home run. No one would have said that shit, like David Griffin tried to do too much. Yeah, um, yep. and and so but from jack Juan's point of view i get you know it's yep. like i i you know i i'm going back into coaching i've waited this long other opportunities are going to be out there for me i'm going to wait it out for something better and he pulled out from from the other searches the the washington search and the orlando searches well not the orlando because he's already fired from there once but the washington the washington search he pulled out of so uh that was done but with regards to Willie Green, it's unclear. I mean, obviously, Fred and Spoon are uh, here to stay. And I think that was one of those things that's just, like, non-negotiable. Um, I think that's also for Zion reasons. And, and frankly, not just Zion, but, like, B.I. And, and who else? Like, Fred is a hot commodity, um, simply because of the work he's done with B.I. and Lonzo and the success that he's had, but also the work that he does with Zion and, and, and the others. And it's just one of those things. It's like, look, this is part of the deal. Like the, consider them as people that are just fixtures on this roster for now, because that's, that's who our players love. And it also helps maintain a level of continuity uh, and familiarity. So the transition isn't completely a new one with all new faces and, and all new terminology and on all of that. So I get it from the Pelicans point of view. I get why they are so hell bent on keeping those two particular people. I get it. Um, I think ultimately it's not, I don't think it's that big of a deal that the Vaughn didn't work out for those reasons. I think honesty is the best policy here. And David Griffin was upfront about this, right. Um, That this is who he is. And that's why Vaughn walked away. And I think that's okay. I think it's okay for a coach to decide I don't want to be a part of this. And I think it's okay for Griff to want to have a hand in everything because that's his job. And, and he wants to have a hand in things until they're good. So he can kind of like take his hand off the steering wheel, but until they're not, he, he wants to, he wants to know what's going on. Um, I, I can see how it gets overbearing, but to me, it's, it's overbearing for those people who aren't doing a good enough job. Yeah. Um, I, and I try to relate to any sort of management position. And so you want people to, uh, I, I, the uniqueness here is that you are in theory interviewing and potentially hiring the, the cream of the crop here, like the, the, the best people in the world at doing what they do. And so in that respect, it's different than like you and I's day jobs. And like, where you know, there's the, the talent level is just far different. And so Whereas for me, I'd say you've got to earn my trust before I can, I'm, I'm more hands-off and I'm not going to like, you know, try not to micromanage, but I feel like that's, that's the other thing is like in Griff's case, I mean, in theory, you're hiring people who should know what the hell they're doing. Um, 
But at the same time, there's plenty of hires that don't work out. So it's it's just it's just a really competitive industry. And so in that sense, it kind of it kind of makes sense for Griff to want his fingerprints on it. And you know, you you've got to prove yourself to to get the, the extra you know leeway. And so yeah, I mean, I I see both sides. Um, I, yeah, I don't, I don't want to let Griff completely off the hook here because for like, sure, I, for I sure. do think that he has tendencies that can get really annoying to people, uh, to his coaches, right? I, I really truly believe that, and and um and that's something he's going to have to wrestle with and and try to get under control, or or frankly just find someone who doesn't care about them. And it remains to be clear that uh, it remains to be seen what uh, what Willie Green's going to be and, and what the balance is going to be there. But with regards to the league wide trends on this, I think people and fans would be shocked um, to know that that head coaches don't have complete autonomy. They have a boss and the boss is is whoever the GM or the president of basketball operations, whoever the lead dis- decision maker on basketball operations is. Uh, they have one and they answer to him. And that boss plays a pretty huge role in deciding things like who gets what kind of minutes and, and, um, and, and, and what the preferred rotations are going to be and uh, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, down to the style. Like anybody who worked for Daryl Morey, do you think it's their system they're implementing or Daryl Morey's system in Houston? Yeah. Right. It was, it was, it, and obviously Doc, Doc, um, Doc in Philly has been a little bit different. And Doc was hired before Maury was brought on. And so that relationship is, is different. And I think for the first time it's been different. But in Houston, they went through McHale. They went through, um, who was McHale's replacement? That's, uh, that's the coach in, um, in Cleveland right now. Bickerstaff. They went through Bickerstaff. Uh, they went through Mike D'Antoni, and it was Maury. You know, Maury decided this is how we're going to do things. And hey, if I don't want you to play this particular player, Maury just sent them away. And 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 that's what management has done for a very long time. I think pretty much everywhere outside of San Antonio, that's been the case. Um, I think there's been a certain like group of like old school coaches that have been kind of immune to that. I think Stan came from that very old school thought process as well. And um he hadn't, he hadn't been in a situation in, in the new school situation. I think the league has firmly moved away from that. And the role of a head coach has evolved. Uh, and, and frankly, the power they have has never been less like they, their power diminishes by the day because it, it used to be that they were in charge of their own domain and they called all the shots and they were super important and they have this enormous power. And now it's like, well, the players are so quickly surpassing them in power and the head coaches have to <laughs> answer to the whims of the freaking players if the players are good enough. And then obviously management and uh, like uh, you can, you can attribute it to the rise of analytics a little bit. Um, I don't, I think it's unfair to blame the analytics boogeyman here, but with, with how resourceful teams have become in gathering information and using that information to inform strategy um, there's been changes. There's been changes in how, um, management likes to give input. And so I don't think David Griffin is an outlier in this situation. I, I truly believe that with the people, uh, with the people that I've talked to across the league, I don't believe that he's an outlier in that situation. Yeah. I mean, he, he can be on the, you know, the, towards the, you know, on the, uh, you say he's on one side or the other of the bell curve, but he's not the outlier. Yeah. I, I think, I think that's fair. Um, I also think that it's fair to say that, 
Jacques Vaughn, this, maybe it was about the coaching staff. Maybe it was about more. Maybe, I mean, if I'm Jacques Vaughn and I see this, I'm thinking, all right, well, what's next? I mean, you, like you give a mouse a cookie kind of, kind of thing. Like if this is the, yeah. if this is what he's going to do with my coaching staff, like what about midseason? Like what, what's, what, what's going to happen here? And, and so if I'm, I'm him, I'm reading the tea leaves and I'm saying that this is not for me and, and more power to him. I mean, I, I like you said, I, I don't, I don't want to absolve Griff. I mean, there's different ways to do this. And um, even with Griff, I mean, the, the, the micromanaging, he has to prove that he, what he wants is truly what's best. I mean, yeah. Who's who's to say that he's he knows best and the and the head coach that he's bringing in? You're supposed. To, I mean, great leaders hire people smarter than themselves, and so I, I want to be able to trust the person I'm hiring to make decisions, so I don't have to. And so, um, or you know, or I don't have to do the hard work, and I can just be the be the one who's really you know ultimately approving. Um, so, but yeah, I mean, a lot of moving parts here, and I think there's a, a lot. To, uh, there's a lot to consider. Um, so. It, I understand if people think that Griff overstepped. Um, and I certainly understand Jacques Vaughn not wanting to, to play ball. Yeah. And the other, the other tidbit in the article um, with regards to the Vaughn stuff was like, oh, well, David Griffin wanted to um, basically wanted to force Nikhil Alexander Walker and Kyra Lewis as the starting backcourt, which first of all, understand that there is no way that this bit of information is coming from David Griffin's side because there's no advantage to be gained for Griff to put himself out there and be like, yep, this is why I try to put all these people on him and try to put the roster on him like this. Um, and there's, there's no advantage. This is not coming from Griff's side. It's very clearly coming from the Vaughn camp. And, and so I do not believe for a second that Griff is serious about going into next season with those two as the starters. And if you have any sense, you're going to look at all these rumors that are coming up. The Pelicans are interested in Kyle Lowry. The Pelicans are interested in Colin Sexton. The Pelicans are interested in Spencer Dinwiddie. The Pelicans are interested in trading for Damian Lillard. They'll be like Bradley Beal. All these players, that cannot possibly be true. And they are planning to, to start um, Nikhil and Kyra. That's just that's not the case. And what likely is what happened is when you interview a head coach, you have an incredibly rare opportunity to interview a basketball mind that is not from your organization, is from an opposing organization, and get an assessment of your roster and what, A, what they would do with your roster and B, how they feel about the skill. Free consulting. Free consulting. <laughs> 100%. That's exactly what it is. It's intel gathering. And, and I'm quite sure David Griffin asked him, what he would do with that backcourt. I'm quite sure. I do not believe for one second that that's going to be the starting backcourt. And if it is, oh my God, like <laughs> these guys better be. Uh, buckle up. Yeah, we, <laughs> we, we, we better have a three through five that's just off the charts. Yeah, like you better be like friggin' like Nikola Jokic at the five. Or <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's not, it's not going to be, you know, it's, it's just not going to be the case. So, um, I think there there's a, a lot that you could have taken away from that article. The most important thing for me is one there, they were serious about figuring out what opposing coaches thought of their young players. The other guy that they mentioned was Jackson Hayes and they, how high they are on Jackson Hayes. And I can, I can confirm that they are very, very high on Jackson Hayes and hopefully we get to see him in summer league, but that's the plan that they're, they're going to run him in summer league and give him freedom to do point Jackson things. I, it can change, right? You can, 
for whatever reason, you know, there, there can be a multiple of reasons that that might not pan out with regards to him playing in summer league, but that's the plan as of now. And, and so hopefully it stays that way. And hopefully they get an opportunity to do that. Him, Kyra, Didi, Najee, and whatever they, they do in the draft, you know, whoever they end up drafting and or putting up as a undrafted free agent, we'll see. But it, it seems to me that they are doing their homework on how the league feels about their young players. And that could be important for internal growth. That could be important for trade purposes. Yeah, um, I, I think, I mean, I, I think some of the more immediate reactions were in regards to, oh, do the, Pelic- are the, are the Pelicans overvaluing their own players? And I would say we've, we've learned a lot from across the league on there are certainly biases like this here. Um, and so what I, what I don't want people to take away from this is that, you know, when, when given the opportunity to make a move for a legit star, that they're going to say, oh, no. We see this in Nikhil. We see this in Jackson. Like, forget it. They're they're out the door. If you if you if it, that's what it takes to bring in the star. So, yes, I, I think the Pelicans maybe do slightly overvalue their own players that they drafted. Um, but at the same time, I don't. There, there's not going to be hesitation if that's what it takes to really make a meaningful transaction and, and bring to get Damian Lillard. Yeah. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. So you know, I, again, I don't. I don't know what's going to shake out in free agency, but Mason and I are going to talk about it uh, in this next podcast. So um, I think we've covered a good amount of topics here. Uh, I would like y'all to join us on our next episode where we start breaking down some of the rumors um, like Colin Sexton and Kyle Lowry and, and look ahead into what's going to go on with the draft. What's up, everybody? I'm Bladen. I'm Matt. And I'm Theo. And we are Stay Hot, the only podcast that gives you the hottest analysis and takes on the NFL and NBA all year round. I know that there's a lot of losers and haters out there who don't think three sports TikTokers can hang for a full pod, but, you know, we're going to prove them all wrong. We're about to dive deep into the NFL draft and are already hitting the NBA playoffs. So watch Stay Hot on YouTube or listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.